2: They have planned that are now leading us into a one-world communist government.
3: Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out Podcast, where we talk about hidden history, deep political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the odd man. Welcome.
4: Simpler. is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation.
5: The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad
6: scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel.
2: Not to men like you. <laughs> there are no men like me.
7: There are always men like
3: you. Welcome, big tech, the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, the ATF, the DEA foreign governments in the Five Eyes and 18 Eyes program, everyone listening, freaks and geeks, and all fans and haters of the Oddcast featuring the odd man out. I am delighted that you are interested in listening to the show once again, and I thank you for your attention. So this episode is dedicated to all those people throughout the history of mankind and I'm sure this dates all the way back to antiquity, those people who said, our government would never do that to us. The powers that be would never do that to us. Oh, they would never stoop that low. You're a conspiracy theorist. You, you're you a tinfoil hat wearer. You are crazy. You're insane. He's a nut. Well, this episode, my friends, is dedicated to you And everyone who's ever said that kind of thing throughout time, because I just wanted to take a few of the most notorious samples in modern time of these times when our government did some pretty horrible things to us. And oftentimes it was under the guise of it's science or do it for the kids or the greater good. And those are still the reasons that we get screwed over time and time again today. Guys, nothing has really changed about politics. The technology's changed. But other than that, they're still using the same exact techniques on us to divide and conquer us. From within, from without, at every direction. And now, they have more ways to do it than ever. So, you have to pray for discernment harder than ever. And be vigilant, eternal vigilance. So, why don't we just go ahead and get
8: into it? Shall we? And then on July 1st, 1953, doctors from the Veterans Administration put him under and gave him a lobotomy.
2: You see these scars here, don't you? That's what they were the frontal lobe or something. I don't know, they cut off. I don't know why. Oh, when I first got it, it looked terrible. All right. Looks like somebody shot, they'll learn shotgun.
8: (laughs) World War II mythology says American boys came home victorious, married their girls, and put the war behind them. Roman Tritz is evidence that wasn't always the case. Digging through government records and interviewing families, The Wall Street Journal has found that the Veterans Administration lobotomized hundreds of World War II vets, would return from overseas with serious psychiatric conditions.
2: It, it sounds like a Goldarn uh, Grimm's fairy tale, only well, it's not a fairy tale.
8: <laughs> it's true. The Department of Veterans Affairs says it has no record of its lobotomy program, but musty files uncovered by the Wall Street Journal and the National Archives show that between April first, nineteen forty-seven, and September thirtieth, nineteen fifty, VA doctors lobotomized fourteen hundred and sixty-four veterans. The records show another 466 VA lobotomies outside that period. And it's likely hundreds of other vets went through the procedure before antipsychotic drugs came on the market in the mid-50s, revolutionizing mental health care. Roman Tritz is one of the very few still alive to tell the story. A lonely voice from a lost moment in American military history.
2: And for me on shock treatment,
0: Insulin coma and convulsive shock treatment succeeded in bringing back many sick people to good health. However, there were numerous patients who relapsed after shock treatment. Many of these patients can be further benefited by psychosurgery. Operations can be performed under local anesthesia if the patient
6: is sufficiently cooperative.
8: In 1953, a VA surgeon cut into Roman's skull and sliced the neural fibers in the front of his brain, an operation much like the one shown in this 1941 footage. At the time, the VA believed the treatment was the best hope for psychologically disturbed vets, such as Roman. Many, including Roman, suffered seizures. Roman's sister has never forgotten how her brother looked the day after the operation.
9: My mom and me went to the hospital to see my brother, and I can visualize it yet that he was seemed to be in so much pain. He was just seemed to be writhing in pain. And it was very heartbreaking to see that.
2: I never had a headache like that before. Nurses come around and give you, give you pain pills or stuff, you know, It never done any good. I will perform transorbital lobotomy on 10 patients within an hour.
4: The in the 1930s, a new brain surgery, like the one portrayed here in the movie Francis, was brought to the United States, the lobotomy.
2: Only a little more dangerous than operating to remove an infected tooth.
4: It was performed on mentally ill patients all over the country.
2: Lobotomy, gets
4: some home. Hailed by the media as a miracle cure. Life Magazine, The New York Times, Time Magazine, they loved it. Lobotomy was felt to be mainstream science. It wins the Nobel Prize. But more than 40,000 surgeries later, the brutal truth about lobotomy would come to light. They were basically going in and mushing around brain tissue and unfortunately, in many cases, leaving patients worse off. Seven decades later, a look back at the lobotomy story shows how far our understanding of the brain has come and how far we still have to go.
3: And there we go, our first example, the lobotomies of World War II soldiers. And of course, this is not the only example in history where we know... That our beloved government, through pharmaceuticals and the medical associations, experimented on soldiers. It's heartbreaking, but it's just the facts. And people would like to say, hey, that was a long time ago, and we're so much more intelligent now, and we are so much more ethical now. Are we really? Are we really? How much are you willing to bet on that? And obviously, I'm just giving quick examples here. I don't want to spend too much time on each one. But next, we're going to look at Agent Orange and its effects on our soldiers, as well as the Vietnamese people during Vietnam. And we know that it's caused health problems on our soldiers. If we could only look, and I urge you to look at a lot of the birth defects and problems that children and adults and ever since the vietnam war people have had in vietnam the deformities it's 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 heartbreaking so just in the last couple of decades have the soldiers gotten any compensation from that and of course it'll never be enough and many of them went on to die before they ever received any compensation so again these are the things that can happen and vietnam wasn't really that long ago My dad fought in Vietnam. So anyway, let's get right to it.
10: During the Vietnam War between 1961 and 1972, the U.S. military fought a seemingly invisible enemy, the Viet Cong. Hidden in the protection of dense jungles, the fighters of the Viet Cong were superior to the militarily better equipped American troops. In 1962, the US military responded to this disadvantage with a strategy called Operation Ranch Hand. Over the nine years of this operation, they extensively sprayed the rainforests with defoliants to expose the frequently changing routes and positions of the Viet Cong's supplies and soldiers, which crossed national borders. The defoliants were sprayed mainly from the air, but ground troops were also spraying from military vehicles. During the war, the US Americans used different types of defoliants, called agents, which achieved various results. About 4.7 million liters of agent blue was used specifically to destroy the harvest and rice plantations. Approximately 1.8 million liters of agent purple was sprayed to test concentrations and effect. Agent Green and Agent Pink were then combined and approximately 30,000 to 50,000 liters of this combination were sprayed over everything. At about 20 million liters, Agent White was the third largest agent and wasn't contaminated with dioxin. The only problem was, unlike the other agents, it took much longer to achieve its effects. So they decided it wouldn't work to win the war. The most effective and thus widely used of them all was Agent Orange, a mixture of purple, pink, and green. Approximately 45 million liters of Agent Orange were sprayed over Vietnam. Overall, more than 75 million liters of dioxin-containing defoliants were sprayed during the Vietnam War. After the war, in 1972, the Americans had more than 8.5 million litres of defoliants still in stock. Parts of it were sold to South America as herbicide, but the majority was burned on ships in the oceans. Whether the dioxin was completely destroyed or is now circulating in our oceans is difficult to know for sure. What we do know is that Operation Ranch Hand caused not only significant damage during the war, but has ongoing consequences that far exceed its intent and will affect many generations to come.
2: More than 1,300 Vietnam vets have filed claims for Agent Orange contamination. Not one has been honored. We want an investigation of the Veterans Administration. We want the American people to listen to us the Vietnam veterans, for years, were screaming for attention, screaming for help. Many of my brothers have died when well, you sat up there and played political bullshit.
5: Gentlemen, we can't wait. 20, 30,
4: 40 years. The government said a lack of scientific consensus stood in the way of much being done.
8: We don't mean to say that there isn't an Agent Orange effect, but at this point in time, We don't seem to see anything that confirms that there's something there specifically.
5: The ranch handers are not dying off like flies.
4: But the veterans notched a victory after it was revealed that some of the herbicide's makers had struggled over evidence of its potential dangers as far back as
1: 1965. Just hours before, thousands of Vietnam veterans were supposed to be represented in court against seven chemical companies. There was an out-of-court settlement.
7: Over the next six years, the fund will pay out at least a quarter of a billion dollars to veterans and their families, including children not yet born
4: this was only a partial victory.
7: None of this, say the defendants, means an admission of their liability for their veterans' injuries.
6: Agent Orange was a safe product when it was used in the Vietnam War, and it's a safe product today.
4: But the veterans continued to fight and gain ground. In 1990, the Veterans Administration released a sharply critical report, which found that even if the scientific studies lacked consensus, there was enough evidence to compensate veterans for Agent Orange claims. Another announcement from the V.A. followed closely behind.
11: With today's decision, the government admits for the first time Agent Orange may well have caused cancer. In this case, a rare form called soft tissue sarcoma. The
6: government has now agreed to pay $8 million a year to veterans.
4: Vietnam's American veterans were finally making headway in their long battle against Agent Orange.
11: Today I am announcing the normalization of diplomatic relationships with Vietnam.
4: This was a historic announcement for both the United States and Vietnam. But behind the fanfare, one issue from the war remained as divisive as it had when Mueller first sought to encourage reconciliation in 1981.
1: This past week four,
8: American
6: combat veterans of Vietnam returned there.
8: As we anticipated, The Vietnamese doctors that we've met with very much share our concerns about the effects of Agent Orange. In a poor
4: country like Vietnam, where people confront a multitude of health issues, it was hard to figure out exactly what had caused the birth defects exhibited by its children. But the Vietnamese government insisted the cause was Agent Orange.
8: Although that war was long ago, there is lingering anger about the United States' use of a controversial defoliant spread by American aircraft on the jungles there. An epidemic of birth defects, brain damage and rare
5: cancers still affecting hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese today.
2: There was always an issue that would come up in our discussions with the Vietnamese that was clearly a source of continuing resentment and anger, and that was Agent Orange.
4: In 2006, with this bitterness still fresh, Bobby Muller asked Town Nguyen Griffiths, one of his advisors, to survey families like the Tans, who blamed Agent Orange for their children's birth defects. According to environmental studies, high levels of dioxin could still be found in the soil in certain areas and had seeped into nearby lakes.
10: But, you know, people have access to the lake. Dioxin is contained in the fatty tissue of fish and duck and there was a high level of dioxin in people's blood sample.
4: Mueller and Nguyen turned to Senator Patrick Leahy for help pushing America to clean up areas that were still contaminated by the dioxin in Agent Orange.
2: Senator Leahy was not interested in the excuses and he felt we had a responsibility. Fortunately, there were people in higher places who agreed with him.
4: In 2006, the group saw a window of opportunity as President George Bush was preparing to visit Vietnam. A few phrases referencing the contamination were inserted into a prepared statement.
1: It was an opening. It was the first time the high-level official, the President of the United States, uh, had spoken on this subject.
4: This opportunity was seized. Six years later, in a joint project, the U.S. government began cleaning up the first Agent Orange hotspot at the Da Nang airport.
6: Today's ceremony marks the start of a project between... To
1: actually see that the two governments are taking steps to tangibly destroy this terribly dangerous poison was very significant.
6: This is a historic landmark. We're cleaning up this, this mess.
1: At the airport, where
4: Agent Orange was once stored, They've just completed building what amounts to a massive concrete oven. Contaminated soil was put inside and will be cooked for several months under immense heat. Scientists say the process will finally render it harmless. The system was just switched on this April.
2: What we learned is that you can't just turn your back on civilians. The price of doing so is simply creating more resentment among the very population whose support that you need to carry out the mission.
4: The fight over Agent Orange continues.
11: What was done cannot be undone, but we can end the silence. We can stop turning our heads away. We can look at you in the eye and finally say on behalf of the American people, what the United States government did was shameful and I
12: am sorry and with funding drying up doctors Talia clark and Raymond Fondolea decided that it would be a good idea to study untreated syphilis for six months in a population of African-American men to demonstrate the need for direct treatment programs plus to you know compare to the progress of untreated syphilis in white individuals. And in 1932, the study began. There were 600 total individuals involved in the study, 399 of them had been diagnosed with syphilis, and 201 of them were not diagnosed with syphilis, and they were used as a control group. Men were given periodic treatments for quote-unquote bad blood, which was sort of a blanket colloquial term that uh, it wasn't a real diagnosis. It was used to include several diagnoses, including syphilis, anemia, and fatigue. From the outset, there were some pretty serious ethical issues with this study. First of all, the individuals with syphilis were never told of their diagnosis. They were just told they were being treated for bad blood. They were never told that they wouldn't receive actual treatment for syphilis, and they were never given any information about the prognosis of their condition, about how contagious it might be, or any congenital implications should they choose to have children. Throughout the early part of the 30s, several papers were published on the study, and they were roundly criticized because it was unknown if the subjects were even being treated. Later, it would come out that the physicians involved were specifically asked not to treat the patients. It's at this point, in 1936, four years into a six-month study, that it was decided that the study would follow these individuals until death. And indeed, the study went on until 1972, 40 years longer than originally proposed. By 1928, Alexander Fleming had already discovered penicillin. By 1930, it had shown promise in treating a number of illnesses, and by 1940, it had been used widely and successfully, and there were already plans underway to start mass production. With the onset of World War II, treatment for syphilis was ordered under the draft, but the subjects of the study were prevented from obtaining it. And by 1945, penicillin was the treatment of choice for syphilis and many other conditions. And for syphilis, one course of antibiotics was all that was required if the diagnosis was made early enough. By 1947, rapid syphilis treatment centers were established, but the men in this study were prevented from accessing them. They were told that they would lose their medical care. They were told that they would no longer get the free meals associated with participation in this study. And they were told they would lose the funeral benefits provided by this study. And beyond that, access to the existence of the syphilis treatment centers was actually suppressed by the people involved in running this study. In 1968, a social worker named Peter Buxton and several others blew the whistle on the study and the gross ethics violations committed by the people running it. In 1969, a year after the whistle was blown, the CDC stated that it needed to continue the study. But in 1972, it was publicly condemned. And the study ended.
3: So there, you heard about the Tuskegee experiments. Many of you have heard of that. It's one of the more popular ones, but it doesn't make it any less disgusting. And speaking of disgusting, let's talk about MKUltra. I spent quite a bit of time on this one because it was connected to so many other operations and lasted for so long and had connections to other governments and many other institutions. So let's do it.
13: In the mid to late 1970s, Over 20,000 CIA documents were released regarding the United States' most illegal undertaking. This is the story of how a single government agency planned and attempted to control and alter the minds of those who inhabited the country that they run, how the United States government attempted to develop psychological, biological, and radiological weapons to turn both foreign and domestic spies into sleeper agents, and how it could still be going on today. But MKUltra wasn't just one single project. Look at it as a web of experiments that were all interconnected with one ultimate goal control. Project Bluebird, Artichoke, MK Search, and MK Naomi are just to name a few. But it goes much, much further. Although it started earlier, MKUltra was officially signed and begun in 1953 under CIA Director Alan Dulles. It was one of the largest projects ever known. Over 150 subprojects were created and handled by over 80 different institutions, universities, prisons, pharmaceutical companies.
0: For the actual test, Private Zdrosny received a high dose of the incapacitating agent, given intramuscularly to permit precise measurement of dosage. In 15 minutes, he won't be able to focus his eyes properly. In an hour, his speech will become difficult. Private First Class Hannon was given a medium dose. Cannon, a college graduate serving in the artillery, will feel woozy in 15 minutes. In three hours, he will be overcome by sleep, even though listed for duty. The third and fourth test participants reported to the aerosol branch of the laboratories to receive the incapacitating agent by inhalation. A low dose of agent was fed into the mixing bowl, and the longest weekend began for specialist fourth class carpenter, 23 years old, and with 16 months in the infantry. Within an hour, Carpenter's hands will feel cold, his face hot. Borderline hallucinations will come late in the experiment. For the fourth volunteer, Sergeant Hall, there would be no effects. Hall was unaware that he was inhaling an inactive substance, in effect, an aerosol placebo. He is 24, a high school graduate, with six years military service in the engineers and infantry. He had received a full dose of the incapacitating agent in a prior test. The medium dose received by Private Hannon made him careless, but he worked with Sergeant Hall to maintain the situation map so that it reflected information from incoming messages.
2: Delta-1, this is Alpha-1. Over. Set your clock to conform. Over.
0: The peak of the compound's physical effects was reached within four to six hours the peak of metal incapacitation several hours later when a simulated chemical alarm sounded. Inability to put on his protective mask demonstrated that the full dose recipient, Sidrosny, was totally ineffective as a team member. The team, therefore, had suffered 25% total casualties plus. This is a glass of water, colorless, tasteless. It contains 100 gamma of LSD-25, one-tenth of a milligram, the equivalent of one-six-hundredth of a grain. An ounce of this material will make 150,000 such doses. LSD is incredibly powerful. Eating or injecting even a smaller quantity of LSD as one two-hundred-and-eighty-thousandth of an ounce can cause such symptoms as hallucination, distortion, panic, impulses toward violence, suicidal acts, and psychosis. Uh,
2: and this is uh, essentially the application of propaganda
1: methods, the most violent kind, to individuals. It's not a shotgun method like okay. the,
2: uh, the advertising method. It's a way of getting hold of the person and playing both on his physiology and his psychology, till he really breaks
1: down, and then you can implant a new idea in his head.
3: And that last little excerpt was Aldous Huxley talking about implanting ideas in a human's mind. And so he's kind of like a lot of these flawed characters throughout history, these authors and speakers and politicians, researchers. He, at times, seemed to be a part of the globalist insiders. He definitely was, and so was his brother, Julian, who started UNESCO. But at other times, he was warning us about what was going to happen in the future. And I think that Brave New World is one big warning, and a lot of those things are coming true. And just like George Orwell with 1984 in his books... Orwell, it was found out, had a security clearance for MI6 when he passed away, so you have to wonder if these guys are insiders, if they just gave up and joined the globalists and joined their governments, or if they were always a part of it, if they were controlled opposition, limited hangouts, what was going on with these guys, but nonetheless, you can learn a lot from Brave New World and from 1984, as well as some of their other writings.
1: George White was not a man of understatement or subtleties. His boss at OSS, Stanley Lovell, referred to him as deadly and dedicated. In this note from White's diaries, it says, call Lovell regarding TD. TD was a rather transparent cover for truth drug. George White worked with the truth drug committee here at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in the nation's capital. They experimented with mescaline, scopolamine, and marijuana on unwitting victims. The committee soon learned there was no easy panacea, no truth drug at this stage. But White and later colleagues would not stop trying. The goal remained the same. As this 1952 CIA memo says, the aim is controlling an individual to the point where he will do our bidding against his will and even against such fundamental laws of nature as self-preservation. But it was a discovery here in Basel, Switzerland at Sandoz Laboratories by Dr. Albert Hoffman that led the intelligence agencies of America to believe that they had found the panacea. The discovery was lysergic acid diethylamide, LSD. The film that you see is considered by many experts to be the closest illustration of the effects of a hallucinogenic. It was one of the first times that anybody had run into a powerful drug that was different than anything else that they knew anything about. John Gittinger, recently retired chief psychologist for the CIA. This is the first time Gittinger has been interviewed publicly disable a whole city by putting a very small amount on a water supply. After all of these years of us, uh, 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 those of us who were involved in looking for this secret drug, uh, this was the only thing that began to look for the first time like it might be something like that. The CIA's interest in LSD was intense. The worry was that the Russians would get hold of it. Were the Soviets into LSD? I'm going to have to say, I'm sure they were, but if you ask me to prove it, I've never seen any direct proof of it. But at one point, intelligence information received from Switzerland said that Sandoz Laboratories was about to put 100 million doses of LSD on the open market. And it caused enough concern within the agency that the United States was prepared to buy the entire supply. However, a slight mistake had been made. The mistake is made public for the first time. I just found out on a new CIA document that there were no such um, large quantities of LSD on the market. John Marks has filed numerous freedom of information suits against the CIA and has unearthed much new material. He is the author of The Search for the Manchurian Candidate, a history of intelligence agency work with mind control. He is a consultant for this report. What happened is that there was a military attache in Switzerland, an American officer who got
4: milligrams and kilograms mixed up. In other words, he made a mistake of thinking one one-thousandth of a gram was the same as 1,000 grams, which is a mistake of a million times. So when the CIA got the intelligence that there were 100 million doses on the market, in fact, there were a 100 doses.
1: The man who would oversee the CIA's research into drugs and most of the agency's behavior programs is this man, Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, a chemist. Dr. Gottlieb declined ABC News' request for an interview. In their never-ending search for the miracle weapon, CIA operatives searched here in the remote mountain areas of southern Mexico for what up to then had been considered a myth, magic mushrooms. They used this man, a part-time chemist with the CIA, to dupe this man, a vice president of a bank and an amateur mycologist or mushroom expert to try to get to the magic mushrooms and turn them into a drug. But it would be the amateur R. Gordon Wasson and his colleagues who would win the race and develop the drug psilocybin from the magic mushrooms.
2: We went into the Mazatec area far from the highways, remote from Mexico City there we found that rotten bagasse, as it's called, bagasso, covered with mushrooms. These mushrooms, I didn't know, didn't never, never seen, they were the sacred mushrooms.
1: Wasson would also discover and record the ancient mystical rites of the mushrooms from a local shaman or magical priestess, Maria Sabina.
2: And we were seeing incredible sights. They would go slowly, or they would go fast, as I ordained. All your senses are rendered acute. We say that you see visions, you see hallucinations, but that doesn't begin to tell the story. The hallucinations are only part of it. You hear sounds, you smell things. The, the, the night was thrilling.
1: Psychic driving and the ultimate
2: depatterning.
1: Dr. Maurice Dongier, current head of the Allen Memorial Institute.
5: In his uh, psychic driving, uh, so-called, type of of therapy, he would give the patient intensive uh, electric treatment in order to make the patient uh, regress deeply, uh, become forgetful, and then he would
1: attempt to implant new ideas Uh, in the mind of the patient. Now, to a layman, it would appear that Dr. Cameron was trying to take the slate and wipe it clean, the slate being the mind. In other words, brainwashing. Exactly, that's a very good comparison. Brainwashing? Yes. Cameron used this combined sleep electroshock treatment on patients as long as 30 days. One patient he kept asleep for 65 days. Cameron retired and his successor, Dr. Robert Claghorn, ordered a follow-up study on the patients treated with Cameron's de-patterning method.
2: It showed that it was no more beneficial in its result than the use of more conservative methods.
1: But the follow-up study showed that 60% of those who had been de-patterned still had amnesia for periods of anywhere from six months to 10 years. That's quite a memory loss, isn't
2: it? That is a memory loss, indeed it is. It's more, I think, more than desirable. In retrospect, does Dr. Cameron's
1: experimentation and his treatment appear harsh?
2: I wouldn't call it harsh. I would say it was harder on the staff than it was on the patients, because these people had to be fed and they had to be cared for and they had to be uh, given sufficient fluid and food and toileted and so on and so forth. It was a, a very difficult uh, uh, thing for uh, the staff to uh, to, uh, to follow these patients properly and see that they, they did well.
10: <laughs>
14: well, I'm glad he was concerned for the staff. But damn it all, I, I wouldn't, I, I, I could have maybe had a different kind of life. and. That makes me angry, and sad, and I don't know how to explain how I feel, really.
11: The movie, called The Sleep Room, dramatizes one technique for brainwashing. Extreme sessions of electroshock therapy, massive jolts of electricity three or four times a day for weeks. According to her hospital records, Linda McDonald had 100 of these treatments. She entered hospital for treatment of what we can now guess was postpartum depression. Her records show the results of shock and radical drug therapy. May 15th shows some confusion. June 3rd knows her name, but that's about all. June 11th doesn't know her name. I was, had to be toilet trained. I was a vegetable. It would take a dramatic disclosure in the late 70s that the Allen Memorial had been part of a Cold War program of brainwashing experiments, paid for in part by the CIA. Hidden among its most sensitive files were CIA records documenting a project called MKUltra. Between 1957 and 1961, a CIA front funneled about $62,000 US for brainwashing research by Dr. Ewan Cameron. The American media got the story first But the Fifth Estate exposed the magnitude of the human tragedy.
0: Experimental drugs, including LSD, were administered to human guinea pigs. The patients were never told that their treatment was part of a CIA experiment the CIA was in effect asking him to do yeah, he, and what he said he was going to do and he did it. And
11: Rao and a young assistant named James Turner knew they were up against a formidable opponent in the CIA, but they thought the odds would be evened a bit by help from a natural ally. They were in for a disappointment. But
5: well, We expected to have a very potent ally in the form of the Canadian government and unfortunately, instead of helping their own citizens, because the Canadian government was worried about its possible liability, uh, the Mulrooney government in effect stabbed its citizens in the back at every turn in the litigation.
11: Ottawa actually helped suppress a key piece of information, evidence that CIA officials at the U.S. Embassy had actually apologized to the Canadian government when the CIA experiments were first revealed. Jim Turner is still flabbergasted.
5: You've got to understand how important these apologies and expressions of regret were. This is an admission. This is legally admissible in court because it is one of the parties of the litigation saying, I did something wrong and I'm sorry I did it. That is prima facie evidence of negligence and of wrongdoing that goes a long, long way to bringing the case to a, a timely conclusion instead of the protracted ten years of litigation that we had.
7: Tonight on the Fifth Estate, startling revelations about the activities of the CIA in Canada.
11: With a publicity wave gathering momentum and the strength of the victim's case becoming more apparent, the CIA caved in the day before the trial was to begin. They settled out of court for $750,000. At the time, it was the largest settlement the CIA had ever awarded. And it provides a dramatic finale for the movie.
8: Because we made them. (laughs) They couldn't beat
7: us.
11: Producer Bernard Zuckerman says, besides the financial terms, this was a major moral victory.
3: Well, there we go. There's a little bit of history of MK Ultra. I suggest that you look into some books if you want to check into it further. And also, please watch "The Minds of Men" by Truthstream Media. Uh, there's some other great podcasts, I'm sure, on MK Ultra. I don't even know where I heard about that one the first time. Maybe. Maybe going back to InfoWars or uh, No Agenda, but anyway, definitely check that one out, look further into it, and uh, you can bet that similar things like that are still going on today, but it may be that they don't even have to do that physically They may be able to do that through media nowadays and through propaganda and television and radio and internet and all these different things. I don't know, but I'm sure that to a degree that kind of stuff is still going on. So anyway, let's continue this little podcast about all the dark things that the powers that be have done to we the people.
14: An overwhelming number who say they were intentionally exposed to mustard gas in secret experiments have been denied benefits for decades.
0: It's what they did. They did
4: chemicals, they did biologicals, they did disguises, they did electronics, secret writing and the like. This next story is so unbelievable we didn't think it could possibly be true. But after receiving thousands of records and declassified reports from the Army, it's confirmed that during the Cold War the United States military conducted secret tests ON UNSUSPECTING PEOPLE IN THE CITY OF ST. LOUIS. A LOCAL SOCIOLOGIST WILL MAKE HER FINDINGS PUBLIC TOMORROW, BUT SHE SPOKE FIRST TO THE I-TEAM'S LISA ZIGMAN.
14: Lisa Martino Taylor's life work has been to uncover details of the Army's ultra-secret military experiments carried out in St. Louis and other cities during the
9: 1950s and 60s. This study was secretive for a reason. Um, They didn't have um, volunteers stepping up and saying, yeah, I'll breathe zinc cadmium sulfide with radioactive particles.
14: These Army archive pictures show how the tests were done in Corpus Christi, Texas, in the 1960s. In Texas, planes were used to drop the chemical, but in St. Louis, the Army placed chemical sprayers on buildings and station wagons. City officials were kept in the dark about the tests. The Cold War cover story was that the Army was testing smoke screens to protect cities from a Russian attack. The truth, according to Martino Taylor, was
9: much more sinister. It's pretty shocking. um, The level of duplicity and secrecy. um, um, Clearly they went to great lengths to deceive people.
14: By making hundreds of Freedom of Information Act requests, she uncovered once classified documents that confirm the spraying of zinc cadmium sulfide. The greatest concentration of this compound was sprayed near the pruitt Igo housing complex just south of downtown St. Louis. It was home to 10,000 low-income people, and an estimated 70% were under the age of 12. Martino-Taylor claims they all unknowingly inhaled this compound morning, noon, and night, so the government could measure its effects On their lungs.
9: So, this was in violation of all medical ethics, all international codes, and the military's own policy at that time.
14: In 1994, then Congressman Richard Gephardt asked the Army to open its records and explain the St. Louis testing.
13: We want to make
6: very sure that nothing went on that would harm anyone and that all the facts are out on the table.
14: Documents released in the 90s show the Army placed sprayers on this former Knights of Columbus building on Lindell and in Forest Park the Army always insisted the chemical compound was safe. Martino Taylor believes documents prove otherwise.
9: There's a lot of evidence that indicates that people in St. Louis, in the city, particularly in minority communities, were um, subjected to military tests that was connected to a larger radiological weapons development and testing project.
14: For the first time, she links the St. Louis testing to a company called U.S. Radium, a company notorious for lawsuits
9: involving radioactive contamination of its workers. United States Radium um, had this reputation where they had been legally liable, found legally liable um, decades prior for um, producing a radioactive powdered paint that killed many young women who painted fluorescent watch tiles.
14: While the Army admits it added a fluorescent substance to the zinc cadmium compound, details of whether it was radioactive remain secret. Documents uncovered to date indicate the Army never conducted follow-up studies to see whether the compound caused long-term health issues. In 1972, after years of crime, poverty and decline, the government destroyed the pruitt Igo housing complex. Lisa Zygmunt, News Channel 5, I-Team.
6: February 1956. In the heart of New York, Operation Big City was underway. A Ford Mercury, specially adapted with a hidden exhaust pipe, pumped out bacteria onto the streets of Manhattan. Undercover agents entered the city's subway system. Their cases equipped with tiny motors, which covertly dispersed the bacteria Bacillus globuli. Ten years later, the army returned. Light bulbs filled with bacteria were dropped in front of trains and down ventilation shafts. To test how far the bacteria would spread through the subway system. For years, these public experiments were kept secret from the citizens of New York. The Army faithfully filmed its own experiments. Washington DC bus station was the site of another secret test. Thirty similar trials were conducted at public locations all across America. One of the earliest experiments had fatal consequences. In 1951, the army sprayed the bacteria Sriracha marcisums over San Francisco. Eleven hospital patients developed a mysterious infection and within days Edward Nevin died from an illness caused by the same bacteria. In 1953, CIA employee Frank Olson leaped through his bedroom window on the 10th floor of this New York hotel. Nine days earlier, a fellow CIA scientist had secretly spiked his drink with LSD. It took the government 22 years to acknowledge its role in Frank Olson's death. Another cover-up concerned the death of a civilian, Harold Blower. Suffering from depression, he was a patient at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. There, he and five other patients were unwittingly tested with mind-altering drugs by doctors who'd signed a secret contract with the U.S. Army. Again, it was more than 20 years before his family discovered the truth.
15: In 1975, I was living in California with my two children, and there was a knock on the door, and two people in uniform were at the door. They said they were from the Pentagon, and they wanted to talk to me about the death of my father. And I told them that um, my father had been dead a long time. They came in and they told me that they had found papers at the Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland, and these papers had information about my father's death.
6: It took Harold Blower's family 15 years of fighting the government in court before a judge's ruling established the facts.
15: On January 8, 1953, between 9.53 and 9.57 a.m., my father was injected with 450 milligrams or 6.47 milligrams kilograms of body weight of EA1298. According to the drug study notes, at 9.57, my father became very restless and had to be restrained by the nurse. He began sweating profusely and flailing his arms wildly. At 10.01, he pulled up in bed, his body stiffened, his teeth clenched, and he began frothing at the mouth. Similar reactions continued for over an hour. My father was still talking and moving his legs randomly at 11.05. Finally, at about one and a half hours after the injection had begun, my father lapsed into a coma. He was pronounced dead at 12.15 p.m.
3: Well, just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. And all I ask of you guys is please share this episode with your status friends. It doesn't matter if they're on the left or on the right. If they're the type to think and say they'd never do that to us, the powers that be would never stoop that low. Well, they have stooped that low, and these are just the things we know about. There, you can be sure there are things that we'll never know. So anyway, I'm not finished yet. I've got a little bit more to add to this whole thing, and I hope that you are getting something out of this, and I hope that you will remember this and look into things yourself.
6: It is a fine spring day in May 1955, and the good citizens of Georgia are unaware that they are about to take part in one of the most fiendish mass experiments in the history of warfare. As the bombers drone overhead, nobody suspects that they are dispersing 330,000 mosquitoes across the state. They weren't infected with yellow
4: fever, so there was no no real risk of, of an outbreak of disease, and the goal was to see how far the mosquitoes would spread.
6: 330,000 bloodthirsty insects spread across an area of about half a square mile, attacking hundreds of hapless locals. Big Buzz proved that a biological attack using mosquitoes was possible. But to date, it has only ever been used by the U.S. military against its own people.
3: Well, there, my friends, you heard about Operation Big Buzz. There was a similar couple of other operations that I'm going to read about real quick. Operation Big Itch and Operation Dropkick. It says here, Operation Big Itch and Operation Dropkick. The Corps explored the feasibility of using fleas and mosquitoes as weapons. Declassified government documents apparently show tests were conducted, but with uninfected mosquitoes. In 1956, the Corps conducted Operation Dropkick when they released 600,000 uninfected mosquitoes from a plane at Avon Park Bombing Range in Florida. Within a day, the mosquitoes had spread a distance of between one and two miles and had bitten many, many people. The mosquitoes were released across several black communities in Florida. In the predominantly black community of Avon Park, dozens of black people became ill and eight people died. In 1958, further tests discovered at Avon Park AFB, Florida, Mosquitoes could quickly be disseminated from helicopters and would spread more than a mile in each direction and would enter all types of buildings. A longtime Avon Park resident, Beatrice Peterson, didn't know about the mosquito releases, but recalled that screwworm-like flies were released in the mild to late 50s. She was only 14 at the time. She said, We know they released some flies, but what was the reason and why? I can't remember why, because we were in school back then in the 50s, Peterson said. Occasionally, we would see them when they would fly over and drop the little boxes out, and evidently the boxes were supposed to open up. Operation Bigitch was a September 1954 series of tests at Dugway Proving Ground in Utah. The tests were designed to determine coverage patterns and survivability of the tropical rat flea for use in biological warfare as a disease vector. The fleas were loaded into two types of munitions and dropped from the air, the E-14 bomb and the E-23 bomb, which could be clustered into the E-86 bomb and the E-77 bomb, respectively. When the cluster bombs reached 2,000 or 1,000 feet, the bomblets would drop via parachute, disseminating their vector. Big itch proved successful, and the tests showed that not only could the fleas survive the fall from an airplane, But they also soon attached themselves to hosts. And I will, of course, put that link in the show notes. But you can bet, guys, that as I said earlier in the show, there are tests that we'll never know about. And it was years later when these were declassified that people even found out about them. And I'm sure many people never knew what happened to them. But who knows how many experiments have happened, are happening, will happen, I'm certain that there are all kinds of social experiments with technology that we have now. You know, I talk about that all the time. Of course, they know exactly how to control us because they watch how we react to things. So anyway, I do want to go over a couple more subjects before I end the show because I think they're very important. And the first one I want to go over is the anthrax vaccine that was given to our soldiers during the Gulf War. It was a series of six shots And a lot of people, many, many, many people, think it's related to Gulf War Syndrome. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And one of the main things, come to find out, it wasn't even effective for airborne biological anthrax attacks. So I want to go ahead and hit some highlights from this story here. In the early 90s, the United States speculated that Iraq's Saddam Hussein had the capability of using biological weapons against military coalition forces in the Gulf War. In response to this potential threat, the military personnel from the U.S. and other countries were given several non-traditional vaccines, including the anthrax vaccine, in addition to yellow fever, typhoid, hepatitis B, pertussis, and other vaccinations routinely given to soldiers. U.S. Department of Defense officials considered anthrax to be a likely organism that could be weaponized, and a licensed anthrax vaccine had been stockpiled for emergency use since 1987. Military personnel from the United Kingdom also were given vaccines for anthrax. The plague and the pertussis and Canadian military personnel received similar combinations. U.S. forces received experimental drugs such as, and I'm going to try to pronounce this, pyridostigmine, bromide, and a different battery of vaccines. I know this video we're going to listen to some of the excerpts from. They call it PB for short. Including anthrax vaccine and the botulinum toxoid vaccine. No previous deployment in the U.S. history had involved vaccination of a large number of soldiers against biological agents. Gulf War illness, shortly after their service in the Gulf War in 1990-1991, to Returning American soldiers and civilian workers reported that they were suffering from debilitating symptoms such as severe fatigue, joint and nerve pain, headaches, memory loss, gastrointestinal issues, insomnia, and respiratory and neurological disorders. This cluster of acute and chronic multi-symptom illnesses affecting veterans of the Gulf War became known as the Gulf War Illness or the Gulf War Syndrome. A 2014 report by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs concluded that the Gulf War illness has been consistently reported in all studies of the health of the Gulf War veterans. The syndrome has been documented to affect about 25 to 30 percent of Gulf War veterans, which is approximately 175,000 to 250,000 of the 700,000 U.S. troops deployed in the war. According to the report, Studies published since 2008 continue to document poorer general health status and greater disability among Gulf War veterans than in contemporary veterans who did not deploy to the Gulf. Despite the extensive number of studies conducted with Gulf War veterans in the 23 years since Desert Storm, medical surveillance in this population remains seriously inadequate. The initial argument by government health officials seeking to explain the pattern of symptoms associated with the Gulf War illness was that the symptoms were a result of stress-psychological trauma suffered by the troops. However, more convincing evidence pointed to a combination of pharmaceutical, chemical, and environmental exposures, and the safety of the anthrax vaccine was prominently questioned because of continuing reports of a high number of serious reactions among those given the six doses of anthrax shots. A GAO report in 2002 found that 85% of the troops given the mandatory vaccine shot reported reactions and that 16% had either left the military or changed their status in part because of the mandatory vaccination program.
7: Anthrax Immunization Program I'm pleased in the safety of our soldiers. We need to provide the Commanders-in-Chief a healthy, fit, and medically ready force and to strengthen our ability to protect them while they are deployed around the world, defending our nation. The anthrax vaccine immunization program is a critical part of that force health protection program. The protocol, as you know, is six doses over 18 months at zero, two, and four weeks, again at six months, Then again at a year. Uh, Clearly we have knowledge that as many as 10 nations either have or suspected to have the capability in biologic, chemical and biologic warfare. We continue to do research so that we may provide vaccines where that's appropriate.
5: Why anthrax? Well, it's the poor man's atomic bomb. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's easy to get a hold of. It's easy to grow. Uh, And we don't have to go out and tell anybody about that. People already know that. So we have a very dangerous uh, bacterium, very common and easy to get a hold of and we have a very
11: safe uh, vaccine against it. The problems with the current vaccine are that it takes six doses over 18 months to become fully immune. And there are concerns about the reactogenicity of the vaccine, the redness, the swelling, the pain that results from it. And the consequence of all of that has been Uh, Since 1998, when the government made it mandatory for for members of the military, a lot of pushback in regards to not wanting to get the vaccine, concerns about its safety, etc. All
3: right, guys, hang with me here. This is even more interesting, this next part. Off-label use of anthrax vaccine by U.S. soldiers. Anthrax is a serious bacterial infection, but it is not contagious. It is usually contracted through direct exposure to an infected animal or animal waste products in contaminated soil when the bacteria enter the bloodstream of a person through a skin wound or by swallowing or inhaling anthrax spores. If left untreated with antibiotics, lethal toxins from the anthrax bacteria multiply in the body and can kill up to 20% of those infected. At the time of the Gulf War, Bioport Corporation, now Emergent Biosolutions, was the exclusive manufacturer of anthrax vaccine Biothrax. Supplied to soldiers and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, FDA, had licensed biothrax vaccines as effective based on evidence against cutaneous anthrax acquired through the skin. Here, check this out. However, there was no evidence for effectiveness against aerosol or inhaled exposure, which is the weaponized form of anthrax that military personnel would be exposed to in a bioterrorism attack. And so the FDA had not licensed biothrax as effective against inhalation anthrax, and therefore... When the DOD ordered that anthrax vaccines be given to soldiers heading to the Gulf War as well as other military personnel during the 1990s and early 2000s, it was an off-label experimental use of the vaccine. It violated the license use authorized by the FDA and published in the approved vaccine manufacturer's package insert. The licensing issue was specifically highlighted in 1995 in a letter written to the vaccine's first manufacturer, the Michigan Department of Health, from the director of the Army's Medical, Chemical, and Biological Defense Research Program, stating that this vaccine is not licensed for aerosol exposure expected in a biological warfare environment. Moreover, another report released by the Department of Defense The anthrax project manager noted that protecting service members from the aerosol exposure to anthrax can only legally be done if the FDA licenses the vaccine for that specific schedule and indication. Although individual physicians may legally use licensed vaccines for off-label uses in some circumstances, the physician is responsible for assessing the presumed off-label benefits against potential risks each individual given the vaccine. However, with mandatory vaccination programs, the risk-benefit decisions that should typically be made by the physician is eliminated. Therefore, under U.S. law, mandatory vaccination programs are not supposed to be used experimentally or investigationally, but only those vaccines that have been licensed by the FDA for approved indications. Now, this, this uh, goes on and talks about the squalene and the anthrax vaccine, which is uh, one of the ingredients that is in question. And I'm going to, of course, put this in the show notes as well. It's, this is from the vaccine reaction. But uh, you can find tons of stuff about Gulf War Syndrome relating back to the anthrax vaccine. Of course, we know that they destroyed a lot of the oil fields and set them on fire. And these guys were... You know, they were breathing in these toxins from oil burning and all kinds of other things. And there was also some investigations into how Coca-Cola was sending over these uh, crates of Diet Cokes and the Diet Cokes were sitting in the hot sun up to like 130 to 150 degrees in Iraq. And it was making a change in the aspartame that was in these Diet Cokes and possibly causing cancer and other things. So, you know, that there's the burn pits from the more recent uh, war on terror. And I think that's Iraq, but it could be Afghanistan. And and supposedly, Bo Biden may have died from breathing in some of the toxins from those burn pits. But, you know, they do these things, our soldiers, they put them in these situations and, uh, you know, they don't compensate them. They're, what compensation could you give someone when you destroy their health or you kill them? So... Anyway, I think these things are very, very important. A lot of it's forgotten about, but it doesn't have to be that way. Wow, guys, it's been over an hour already, almost an hour and seven minutes. I was going to do a segment on forced sterilization and eugenics in America, but I'm just going to wait and do a whole show on those two subjects. So I hope you've gotten something out of this as always. I want to thank some people. I want to thank the fringe radio network.com for posting my show, the oddcast featuring the odd man out and a lot of other great shows over there. Check them out please. Also, of course I want to thank alternatecurrentradio.com for having me on their network. Thank you to Hesher and Spore. Thank you to Ruckus. Check out I mean, they have a ton of great shows, but check out on Thursdays the Boiler Room podcast, which I'm on sometimes. They have a ton of great music shows on the weekends as well, and a lot of people need some music in their lives. They need to get away from the politics and all these other things, so I definitely recommend you checking them out. My patrons over on patreon.com forward slash the odd man out, and you can become a member of the Society of Cryptic Savants over there. I want to thank James, my first patron. I want to thank Full Metal Keto AF, my newest patron. And I want to thank my friend Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Please check out his show as well. Thank all three of those guys for being patrons. I just started this a couple of weeks ago and I'm adding to it and I'm learning how to put more content on it as I go. So day by day, I'm learning more and I'm going to be posting more stuff on there. I'm not posting as much on Instagram and the other sites. So anyway, thank you so much for all your help, guys, and all your support. And I appreciate you listening. And please take the time to give me a rating. And by the way, if you do, become a patron. I'll be happy to give you a shout-out on the show or plug whatever you want me to plug, as long as it's not completely hideous and vulgar and it goes against my standards, if you know what I mean. So anyway... Cheers and blessings to you and yours. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.
1: government actually did
5: very out on our citizens, experiments involving radiation.
2: think that in this new world order, the powers that be, maybe one of the things that's part of their plan is to release a worldwide virus or pandemic on the world. Why would they do that? Is it to cripple the population so that they can take over easier? Right. Is it to deliberately reduce the population? Depopulation so they can easier control the people.